Hello and welcome to another episode of Voices from SA. My name is Nicholas Claude. Thanks for tuning in. My guest this week is Sinentlantlan Zuma. He is an actuary with Investec Life, based here in Johannesburg. And uh, yeah, quite a guy. He was born in Marion Hill outside Durban. He grew up in Wembezi Township uh, outside Escort. Uh, that was in the middle of the Civil War of the uh, 1980s and early 90s. And uh, now lives in Bryanston in Johannesburg. And we speak a little bit of how he straddles those worlds even today. Uh, we had a really fascinating discussion on a range of topics, including the impact of big data analytics on the insurance industry, gearing up for the fourth industrial revolution, the changing nature of work, and the exciting challenges that lie ahead for South Africa. So please enjoy now my chat with Sinentlantla. Sinentlantla, thanks so much for your time. It's uh, lovely to see you again. We, we did meet briefly just... Uh, couple of weeks back when I just came and introduced myself. Yes, certainly. I think it's a pleasure, Nicholas. Thanks again. And um, I just want to start, as I normally do in these interviews, just to get a little bit of a sense of you. Of you. Um, you're an actuary um, working for Investec Life Insurance, is that correct? What is your actual job description or job title? That's correct. Um, well, I'm an actuary by profession and qualification. Uh, my job description uh, goes along the lines of head product actuary, so essentially looking after the entire product and underwriting and um, uh, and risk element of our insurance business for Investec. And um, could you maybe just give us an idea of what an actuary does? Uh, when I was at high school, it was always like if you were becoming an actuary, you're a you're a very smart accountant. <laughs> um, but I, I get a sense it's a little bit more than that. Yeah, certainly, and I must say accountants don't like that description. Um, <laughs> I, always, I always use, there are two descriptions. There's a short one and a long one. I guess the short one uh, I always use is that an actuary is just a fusion of uh, a statistician, a mathematician, and a financial analyst uh, fused together because you've got this analytical background, strong analytical background, but in a financial context. Um, and then you use that then in whatever, whether it's insurance, investments, medical aid, car insurance, or other field you'll be in. That's a short description that everyone really gets. But I think the longer description is, you, as an actuary, you are kind of the godfather of the future when it comes to some of these financial institutions. Crikey. Because you kind of try to predict as accurate as you can, but obviously no one can foretell the future. But you try to uh, gauge uh, or kind of force the, the, the business to gauge with the future. Mm. So in terms of the risks, mainly it's the risk that you're worried about. Obviously, the upside is, is always interesting to actually uh, gauge with that. But the risk and the protection of the business is always important. And as you can suppose, in, in, in insurance space, we're talking 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years and wow, in a retirement okay. space. So it's quite a long time to be thinking long about. Vi long long, long views, time to yeah. Be, yes. Um, and I suppose... That's interesting um, because, and I think we spoke about this briefly when we had our just our informal introduction a couple of weeks back, this sort of world of the quarterly cycle, the quarterly business cycle. Um, so you have mm -hmm. to sort of balance the, 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 the very extremely short-term view with the very, very, with an unusually long-term view because I, mm -hmm. I, my experience with most 
sort of large corporations is is a sort of three to five year plan depending on how often they change management mm. um, but it's normally a sort of three to five year cycle within that the quarterly sort of reporting um, but you are in a different kind of world then yes certainly and, and, and it is quite a, a bit of balance that you have to achieve I mean you you're in actually with the long-term views in terms of the products and the clients that you're working with but you balance that I guess with uh, with the corporate requirements for much shorter requirements in terms of reporting I mean to boards you report almost every month or quarterly and uh, out there to the public you might be reporting every uh, half year or every annually mm. so those sometimes yes they do shift sometimes the focus because in a year, if you, if you talk about uh, lifespan, and uh, actually as we talk about life expectancies, they're not going to change over a year. So what mm. I told you last day still holds true today. <laughs> uh, but sometimes, obviously, there are other nuisances in that. It could be like the expenses of the business. It could be other things that are forever changing and other economic pressures that you're seeing and how, what impact they've got in the long term. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So the more macro economic impacts yes. or social impacts that are sort of outside of your... Yes. Um, control, I yes, suppose. Yes, yes. Yeah. So then, I, think, I guess you 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 also gauging with some of the things that are moving, you know, uh, on a daily basis, like the macroeconomic uh, conditions, and also at the same time dealing with things like life expectancies and disease progression and all those things that mm. they don't change on a daily basis unless mm. there's an outbreak, but they're changing over a long time. So you're keeping uh, your, your fingers in the pulse in both aspects, and also they interact with each other most of the time. Um, so is it a lot of then uh, scenario planning as well, uh, the kind of just imagining impacts of different factors and what those would be over 10, 20, 30 years and just sort of like changing the the weight of, of different events? Yes. Is it that kind of thing? Yes, in, in, in a nutshell, yes. It, it, yes, it's a bit more complicated than that, but it is about scenario planning. It is about scenario gauging, but obviously you put different weights to different scenarios. Some are more likely to happen than the other. And uh, a lot of it is science, but also uh, what we, a lot of it is, is, is an art, or if I'm being uh, realistic about it, it's more of, a, of, 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 of the gut feel. It's mm. more of, the, of, the, of, the, of your own experience that you use and your own judgment. Actually, in, in my profession, we've got a specific term that we use called actual judgment. So as an actuary, um, it's like being, be, being a doctor and uh, doing an operation. You don't have a textbook there, but you have got the theoretical knowledge. But there are so many scenarios mm. in front of you that you have to use your judgment mm. there to save the life. Sometimes right. in actuaries, uh, there's no textbook. There's no, not, not enough data you'll ever have to actually tell you 100% of the, of the situations. But when you look at everything holistically, whether it's macroeconomic conditions, it's what's happening with an individual client or with a product or with the risk or with the expense of the business, you look at that picture in totality and you do the various scenarios and then you have to use that actual judgment to actually make a decision and actually have an informed um, um, uh, decision built from there. But a lot of it is then the balancing between the science element and that art. And that art, I think, it's it, it one thing that sometimes I argue sets apart an actuary from a, for example, a data analyst. Yes. Data analysts are very clever people. They know the data, they can do all the scenarios, but an actuary then brings that element of, of, of A bit more judgment, imagination in, imagination in and judgment in a commercial, especially in the commercial environment. Of course, those things can be applicable outside the commercial environment also in civil society or elsewhere where actuaries can be involved in. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to just go back a little bit. Um, where were you? Where were you raised? Where Where are you from originally? Where were you born? Yes. Um, interestingly, I was actually born in Durban, 
in in uh, in Marion Hill, just outside Devon. Um, Marion Hill at the yes, monastery. At the monastery, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually only got to visit uh, the monastery when I was uh, about two or three years ago, the first time. Oh wow! Uh, so my 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 mother. How old was, are you? I'm 32 now. So yes. what year was that? So it was then? 1986. Okay. Yes. Wow. So my mother, my mother left. Uh, I was from a village in uh, in Escort in the Midlands. Um, uh, so she left for. Where was that in, in Escort? In Escort. So in Escort, in a in, in a village called Dabamhlope. Okay. Uh, well, it's actually a. Group is that of part of the? Is that part of the tribal? Yes. Land. Yes. Yes. So and she was the she day, was working then in in Durban. Or? Yes. So back in the day, it was under the Zulu uh, administration. So then she moved to Durban, and the, my grandparents were still in 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 escort in Tabamplope. So she moved to Durban just to look for the job prospect. Not much of the prospect in in escort. That's small right, town. Yeah. yeah. And she stayed in. Actually, when she moved to Durban, she moved and stayed in a church. Uh, St. John's Apostolic Church in Claremont. So Claremont is a township yes. uh, uh, there in um, uh, outside Poundtown. Correct, yeah. Um, so that's where she actually met my father, who was a, a factory work, worker there in, um, in New Germany. Okay. Uh, and then she got some work uh, in, in Maranhill, and that's where our, um, uh, my older siblings, my brother and my, and my um, sister, were born, and I was also born uh, then. Okay. And then... Um, then I moved when I was uh, about five to back to uh, Escort in Dawamklope to stay with my grandparents. Mm -hmm. My grandfather passed away in '93, so still during those uh, havoc uh, days in uh, in the Midlands. Ooh, uh, Escort, yes, I remember. Um, what was there? Was the township there? Uh, Wembeze. Yes. Yes. Big punching ground there. Well, not killing ground. Yes, a, a, a huge. Um, and I do, do you remember the, the, those days? I remember very well. I think it was in, in, in the early nineties. Uh, um, mm. And I mean, even in in uh, in, in Dawamplope is probably about ten to fifteen minutes drive from uh, the village. About ten minutes to uh, to fifteen away from uh, Wembeze, which is the township. But I mean, back in the uh, in those days, the the just just the political violence mm. was widespread across the Midlands. There was just blood everywhere. Amabutu was there's the Amatabanis. Yes, Amatabani and Amabutu. Yes, that was uh, that was hectic. Yeah. And I mean, uh, I started schooling there in in my grade two or what we used to call sub B at the time. So I, I was I call up in like seven or six seven. Mm. We literally had a, a woman, a widow, a widow, someone that's a, a widow a killing. A, a guy with his 16-year-old uh, grandson outside our school gate during lunchtime with a panga. Wow. There's something unheard of. It was traumatic. And I mean, we were kids and we were watching until the police got there, but it was like something else. Um, it was but I mean, terribly bloody, that war, wasn't it? It was, it was. I mean, you'll hear the guns almost on a daily basis. Mm. Uh, yeah. So well, uh, so then I grew up there until um, I, I finished my primary schooling, and then I went to Durban, then to live with my mom um, for high schooling, where I did my okay. high, my entire. High so school. that was you were twelve or so when you moved yes. to Durban, and where did you Durban. go to school in Durban then? So for then high school to, at least. Yes, for high school. Then I went to um, Benwood High School. It's uh, it's uh, it, it's what it was traditionally an Indian school mm -hmm. in Sydney. Uh, okay. Yes, yes. So Back it's in of Overport, the yes, just yeah. past Overport, yes, yeah, yeah, there next yeah. to King George Hospital. Yes, King George, okay. Yes, so gotcha. I did my, I did then my uh, my schooling there until matric, 
uh, with fantastic and wonderful teachers, I must say. Mm. Um, I must emphasize that. Um, so those were good years for you, your high school years. You those have fond very, memories. Very, very good years. Uh, it was a bit of a struggle when I, when I got that uh, in the beginning because I, I traditionally came from uh, an environment where, for example, English was the second language. Mm. Um, Zulu was the first language. So all subjects were taught in Zulu. I was still bright that in, the, in those days. I was still number one in class, but I was still not being taught in English. So in the wow, so when you got to high school, high you school didn't really speak English? No, didn't. What the uh, heck? We, we used to only speak English in the English class, but also they speaking it as a second language speaker. So only you get to high school uh, Jeez, and then uh, you have to adjust. So English, every subject is English. Jeez, I'd say. I was very good in maths, but now maths mm. is taught in English. Science, uh, same mm. thing. Uh, but I guess also, for me personally, that was uh, a quicker adjustment than I would say for uh, than my, my, my sister, for example, who was mm. um, uh, who's, uh, three years older than me. It was a bit of a, a hard adjustment. She struggled quite a lot mm. with the adjustment. And I think for me, I even picked up Afrikaans, um, uh, which I did very well in matric. And I, I think if I to look at my life achievements, uh, yes, I was good in maths and science. But I think one of the highlights of my life for me is, I think, in metric, getting an A for Afrikaans Jeez. was amazing. When I hadn't done it before, well, I did better than me. And yes. So you're a, you're, a, you're a smart guy. I suppose. It depends how you define <laughs> it smart. Seems. It also depends how you, how, how you, how well, you define it. Well, I mean, the fact that you've got a sort of mathematical ability and a language ability would, would, would sort of generally mm. sort of point to an all-round smartness. Mm. I mean, was that, so that was all through your schooling career, you are always like the top uh, achiever? Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, I was. And I think I, did I, you I, find it easy or did you have to work hard? In my earlier years, I, I found it was quite easy. Um, certainly in primary schooling. And I think in metric, grade 11 in metric is actually where I put a bit of, of effort. And when I, say, when I say a bit, I think there's a, a cousin of mine, because my mother's still working quite, uh, quite hard at the time. We were being raised by a single parent. Uh, my father was there, but we were not married. They were separated, your parents? Yes. Oh, okay. So I was staying then with my mom and my sister, uh, my brother, and my one of my older cousins who was working at the time also. <coughs> and I think f uh, he still reminds me to this day, the older cousin, that he had never ever seen someone who worked so hard. Hmm. Uh, because yeah. I used to, in, especially in my matric years, uh, yeah, I, I used to work, come back from, from school, do my work, finish my work, read, 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 hmm. read, read, read. read. Practice, practice, practice. Hmm. Because I even, uh, at the time, we, 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 it was an obligation to have six subjects. But I right. took two extra subjects. So I had eight subjects to, to do in my metric year. What were, your, what were your extra subjects? So I added what we had at the time called additional maths. Add maths, So yeah. add maths is, it, it, it's more like the normal maths, but it, it, it teaches you some of the stuff that you only encounter. Bit of university. algebra and stuff like a, a that. Bit of algebra, a bit of financial maths was also included in there. Statistics was, was there. So at, at the time with our curriculum, there was no statistics in normal maths. Right. So that also get you very well for actual science and other uh, courses. And the eighth one I added, interestingly, was Isizulu. Because huh. in my school, as I said, it was a traditionally um, uh, previously Indian school. They right. didn't have Isizulu. So uh, a group of us who, who, who were Zulu-speaking uh, students, most of them came from um, around Deben, Wamashu, Emlas, and we attended right. the, the school, the few of us. Then we arranged then for a teacher to come and teach us on weekends to teach the Zulu. So we, and we also did that only in grade 11 and grade 12. So before that, 
some of them hadn't done it. Luckily, I had done it in mm. my primary schooling. You mean to sort of write and read? To read, write and read. They, they, they could speak it, but they... Yes. So right Jeepers, from the beginning, man. start learning that. Hmm. And so I added the Isizulu, which I actually think it was, it was fantastic. And for hmm. me, it was also quite easy because I'd done the re- writing and reading in, in my primary school. So it was very, very easy. But I still enjoyed it quite a lot. And then, so you, you sort of got this all-round knowledge, but was maths always something that, or maths and science, were those the sort of subjects that excited you then? And was that where you always wanted to kind of go? Yes. Into a, I mean, because actuarial science is, is quite niche. So, I mean, how did you, <laughs> how did you end up there? Yeah. Uh, yes, I, I think, yes, the maths and science has always been, by nature, uh, my, my thing. And I was so much into maths and science that I sometimes, in, in my high school years especially, struggled to understand someone who didn't get, who didn't get it, mm. who didn't understand maths. It was mm. so obvious, mm. even for a new section that we'll be doing, be trigonometry, geometry, algebra, things were just obvious to me. I'll read it once, it will make perfect sense. Yeah. Uh, and I just didn't understand sometimes uh, how uh, people can, couldn't get it. And only in my letters, I understood that we, as, dif- as people, we, di- we wired differently. I'm one of those. In our, in our brains. Uh, so I, I only understood it later, later on. Uh, and I think when I, when I grew up, I always wanted to be, I never wanted to be a, a doctor. At home, they did want that. Um, I wanted to be a chemical engineer. And mm-hmm. I was good in science. Actually, I, I believe I was probably, probably better in science than in maths. Right. Um, I loved science uh, to be both chemistry and, 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 and physical science. Did you have a proper lab at school, fully equipped with yes. all the... Yeah. So uh, only in, like when we were in high school, we did have a proper lab, which was well equipped. And I must say also the, the, our, our science teachers were quite one of the exciting uh, teachers. We made mm. it quite exciting. Yeah. Uh, lots of experiments. Uh, lots of and experimenting. And it was quite, it was quite, it was quite nice. Um, and and I, want, I always wanted to be a chemical engineer. And I think in my years, engineering was still a prime, um, any engineering was still a prime occupation to, or career to be following. Mm. Everyone was flocking to chemical engineering or m- more so electrical engineering and civil engineering. Where are we now exactly in years? Um, what, what year are you matriculating I'm now? I matriculated in 2004. Okay, that's yes. not a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. So it's sure. uh, yeah. So, 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 but only in metric, uh, going to metric, early metric, that I changed my mind from um, uh, chemical engineering to actuarial science. And I must say, before that, I'd never ever heard of something called actuarial science. Mm. I was not even doing commercial subjects. So I was doing science and, and the maths, and mm. uh, I was doing also computer studies. Um, uh, only then that one of the students actually did an English oral piece for, um, uh, for our teacher, and he told us that actuarial science is actually the most difficult course uh, you can do at university. Uh, and it's the highest paying <laughs> job. <laughs> of course, that raised my so interest a lot. <laughs> that the fact that it's the hardest thing you can do. And obviously, I gauge myself against the individual who are saying that, like, okay, if he wants to do that and I can do, I'm doing hmm. better than him. <laughs> I Sorry, I can do that. And then I, I investigated and I found out more about that applied for bursaries and I was lucky enough to actually get bursaries for both chemical engineering and natural science and I had a choice to choose whichever route I'll mm-hmm. follow. Are you quite a competitive person? Um, or ambitious? Or can they be both? I think more ambitious than competitive. Um, 
I yes, I do gauge myself sometimes against other people and weigh just weigh myself against that. But I don't think that's what drives me. Hmm. I think what drives me the most is sometimes my ambitions and how I defined myself and how I defined uh, myself in relation to what's around me. Hmm. And and, and there's, there's just one one concept that I, 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 I've developed, especially in business, that I think to your earlier question that I'm an actuary, I'm in a head product actuary, that sometimes job job description and environmental description don't define hmm. the entire me. Sure. Because uh, as you can uh, uh, you can see, I've, I've got a bit of a background from a village to uh, now I'm in the suburb to where my mother come from, where she was uh, living in the, in the township, uh, to going to a university like UCT, which, which is very very um, uh, European in terms of the, of the context of Cape Town. Um, but those things just build up to the the, the, the entire me. So being an actor is just one component that really doesn't define the entire me. No, sure, yeah, of course not. Mm. Um, but that r- does raise that interesting um, point of you straddling these these different worlds and having to negotiate these different worlds and almost, um, I'm not sure how it has been, and I'd like to hear from you, like almost the schizophrenia that you must kind of have to adopt in moving. Mm. I mean, here we are in a very fancy, uh, one of the largest companies in South Africa, a global company, mm. actually, in Verstek, um, to Wembezi and everywhere in between. I mean, how has that journey been for you, that kind of almost a psychological unbalancing sometimes? Yeah, I, I think yeah, schizophrenia is probably the right uh, way to describe it because you, I, I find myself in various environments in a week, just in a week, because if I have to go home and go to Durban and and be here, I get exposed to from the 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 the, 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 the closely sent in uh, life where I'm based in, because of work um, and, and and being here in Johannesburg, driving and a fancy car, and driving a fancy car in, a nice in, place. in, in yes in, in, the, the the high life of Johannesburg with um, with with its own advantages and disadvantages. And then you, you you go home, or even here around Job, I see family, I've got family, um, aunts and cousins who are in Soweto, in Alex, uh, or I go back home, go back to a village in in, in, in Damanklope. They've got their own challenges there. They've got mm-hmm. their own joys, actually, um, sure, that, that yeah. you find in, in there. I go to Deben, I still go to, at, at one stage, with my mother, we actually lived in, a, in, a, in, in an informal settlement. <laughs> and I still have friends who are still there. In, uh, so there's a there's a an, and you see informal, them yes I still see them there's an mm. informal settlement in Devon uh, uh, in Kennedy Road and sometimes it's one of the things that really sometimes hurt me when I uh, almost on a yearly basis you hear about the fire that has happened oh, there that destroys mm. like at at some point uh, we were there and it uh, it nearly uh, we never had an experience where it destroyed our home but we it nearly destroyed our home. It was fire around. Yes, it, it's fire around and you lose everything. But I mean that uh, that that then of uh, moving sometimes in, a, in one week you could actually be in all this environment. And I think also for me it just sometimes be, bring perspective that no matter where you, where where you are is not it's not the beginning it's not the end. Uh, there's 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 way more to life out there, and also for me, I think it has helped me in business in business decisions that I make uh, to really think about the human impact. It's easier to think of human impact about people who are around you, 
but the people who are who are using your services and your products, um, especially in my previous life where I've worked for other companies, may not necessarily be the ones who are staying in Sentin or in in the fancy um, uh, Cape Town suburbs. But it's the normal average South Africans out there who may actually be uh, using that. So that context sometimes is always use, uh, useful. Mm. Um, have you always then, once you made that decision to study actuarial science, did you know even what that was going to mean for you? I mean, what, what, what were the opportunities available to you? I mean, wh where do actuaries work is it only in insurance or i mean what, what can you kind of work in any sort of uh, i suppose financial institution mm. uh, i think traditionally and uh, still um, uh, still happens today is that as actuaries as, as, as professionals and as a, as, a, as a profession we still box ourselves a lot in terms of what we call traditional areas so you find you've always found actuaries in insurance life insurance specifically uh, you find insurance, uh, sorry, actuaries in uh, retirement planning, like pension funds, provident funds. So actuaries are the ones who do the calculations behind the scenes. Uh, you find actuaries in car insurance, home home insurance. That's where we we also do the calculations there. Uh, medical aid, I'm afraid to say it, but uh, unfortunately we determine those high uh, premiums that you pay on your medical aid. And sometimes it's because of circumstances and uh, what we see in terms of our of our uh, healthcare system that it pushes up the price but as an actually you have to deliver those news unfortunately sometimes um, and we find ourselves in investments so investments uh, uh, not only just retirement but just education in, uh, for saving for, ed for education or investing be it local or, or, or foreign so we get involved those are traditional areas mm -hmm. but I think what we haven't necessarily achieved and we're seeing slowly and, uh, and it's happening more and more is going to what we call wider fields. So fields that are outside these top five. So going into energy, for example, and pricing that and determining the risk that come, for example, with nuclear energy versus the green and clean energy. Mm. Or going into telecommunications um, and going into, uh, in, into, into other civil society uh, 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 spheres where the future is uncertain. Because the moment you've got uncertainty of the future, that's where it actually thrives. Because that's really how we gauge. We gauge with the future. The mm. present, uh, you, can, you can get the, the accountants to deal with the present. But, uh, don't tell them that. Uh, uh, yeah, I hope we don't tell them that too. <laughs> yeah, but uh, when when you have to think about the future, that's when that's actually is, uh, actually needs to uh, need to be. Um, how has um, so you've been sort of a professional for what ten ten years, something like that, working yes, um, mainly in, in in life insurance. Yes, it's been ten years. How has um, I want to speak about technology at a cup in a couple of different levels. Um, big data and data analytics, how has that changed the nature of your work over the last 10 years? Because it must have been mm. quite dramatic. Yeah. And what are the sort of impacts and the the, the pros and cons of all of that, mm. data uh, in particular? Mm. I think we are in the eye of the storm right now. It, 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 we are right there at that moment, in, in that moment of the, of the fourth industrial revolution with the big data, um, uh, and, 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 and the algorithms and the uh, deep learning um, and machine learning automation uh, concepts are really hitting us. Some other industries are way ahead of us. Um, even other financial services uh, industries or sectors are ahead of the insurance industry. But what we've been seeing in the insurance industry um, uh, specifically, I mean, I'm, I'm privileged to be in Investec where we're actually explore, exploring with 
uh, some players in Asia, mainly in Singapore and others in the in the US and the UK, where we 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 we're trying to keep abreast with what's happening. Because uh, one thing you 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 don't want to find yourself in the business is to be in the back foot of what's happening around you and your and what you can actually deliver to your clients. Because obviously that is a competitive disadvantage. But what we've been seeing is that, for example, with insurance, insurance has always been a crutch purchase with a crutch process, unfortunately. unfortunately. So no one wants to, no one wakes up in the morning excited to go and buy life insurance. <laughs> I mean, you, because purely because you 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 are you are you are thinking and you're considering your your mortality. Mm. And by human nature, no one wants to think about that they are mortal. You don't think about your death, your death. So people don't want to think about uh, it's uncomfortable situation to be thinking about buying insurance. So it's not exciting. For, uh, it's a crutch purchase, uh, but it also unfortunately comes that with a, a crutch process, you have to go and see a broker. You're probably sitting across the table. You don't, you don't, you're not sure if this person has got your best interest at heart or they just want to shove something down your mm. throat. Um, and you go through the blood test. You answer these long questions on a paper. And eventually you might be covered, you might not be covered depending on your health. So that whole process does not work. And uh, I think we've discovered as, a, as an industry, it does not work for the newer consumer who's used to Uber, who's used to two-minute noodles and two-minute mm. pizza. Things has to be instant. So insurance then is evolving. The, the the new technology is actually changing insurance in terms of how we view it as a as a crash purchase and, and repositioning the product itself and the offering and the benefits, but also how it's purchased and how it purchased is actually running much more ahead with our with us as investors, but also globally we're seeing that and 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 and, and a lot of fascinating things about big data. It sounds scary, but actually, if you look at it in terms of the of the client benefits, um, the big data that, that that that's available out there, obviously with the right consents and permissions and and, and, and complying with the with the with the with the laws of the country, uh, enable that the client can actually get instant cover without answering all those uh, um, thousands of questions. Mm. And where a, a, a client, for example, previously would have been unhealthy or deemed unhealthy and rejected to and not be able to co- be covered, but now we've got ability to actually got a better open picture up. In a got way. a better picture. Mm. It opens up actually the market much better. Mm. And I think in the future, uh, and we know insurance is not exciting enough for young people; it's for older people. But we're also looking at new products that are actually much more aligned to what young people are looking for. For example, instant cover that will, that covers you when you're outside your home and when you're driving. Because actually, if you're young, the risk that you've got is car accidents. That's more your than biggest anything. danger. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm unlikely to die of a heart attack. I'm sure. not yeah. in, in in your in your twenties or thirties. Right. But how do you have actually insurance that is that is in the moment? So hmm. when I'm hiking. Or when I if I if I go overseas to Thailand, I mm. may need insurance mm. in that instance. Or if I'm driving then and commuting, that's actually the only time I need insurance. When I'm sleeping, switch it off. So it's almost like a, a an on-demand insurance yes. that you can switch on and off as as required. Exactly, and it actually works. Huh. It works perfectly in in the current environment. So so as I'm saying then technology is 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 kind of solving both the crash patches and the process itself. It may, it's much easier to do, but also the product and offering is aligning with the new consumer. I, I, I call them new consumer because mm. the older consumer may still want to see a broker or someone, a relationship manager, and their and their and their needs mm. may actually mm. be more complex. We cannot take that away. You've got dependence. You have to think about the, really what you're taking, and obviously your health may not be as good. So you really need to think carefully what you what you need and how you you structure your your insurance. Yes, it, I mean it's it's kind of you you sort of still having to keep a foot in both worlds as much as you might want to automate everything and have a fully kind of machine run process. You that'll be still one or two more generations, won't it? Where 
where I suppose the kids of today are then the adults buying their their, their home insurance or whatever it is, mm. uh, they will be far more trusting of the machine than a person, say, my age uh, is today or people a little bit older than me. Uh, certainly. And, 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 and I think that's, that, that's, that's pretty much how we're going to be for the next a while because yeah. i think it, it, it's like ordering uh, ordering pizza you should just because if we can order online through the app that means you need to close your front shop now mm. people who want to drive and come to you and buy and look at the menu and think about it that's an mm. experience they're mm. looking for they need to consider it when they were looking and they can smell it yeah that's the part of the experience of buying the pizza so uh, within short of it is not yeah. as simple but some people need to sit with someone to really consider their their needs and then buy well i mean certainly um, online shopping is uh, one of those things, especially clothing and things like that. You know, I think um, I certainly mm. would still like to go into the shop. Uh, and some people still have it. have much more of an easy easy relationship. My sister's eldest kid, you know, she just I mean, she she doesn't mm. never go to mm. a shop. She's she's just her clothes buys online and off she goes. Mm. You know, mm. Um, mm. I'm not quite there yet. I'll buy a book online, but not a not a pair of shoes. I'm completely opposite. I hate going to a mall. I just get a headache. <laughs> so I buy as much as possible online, and it saves me a trip to go to a to a, to a shop. <laughs> well, yeah, a mall. That's a that's a nightmare for most people, I think. Yeah. Yes. Um, Sid I just want to talk a little bit about sort of the corporate environment. You must be. I mean, how many actuaries are there in the country? Do you know? Last time I checked it, we, we were around 1,500 or so, roundabout. And how um, many of those are, are, are black? Sure. Certainly there will be less than 10% of that, if not less than 5% of that. You can still count, actually, the number for, of, of black actuaries, and even uh, even most scary black female hmm. uh, actuaries. I guess, we, we, like, like, like South Africa, in terms of the, of the, of the economy, uh, the formal economy side, it's still skewed more so towards white male so mm-hmm. uh, the, the the picture the picture of, a, of an actuary in south africa has always been white male mm-hmm. um and only i think past 10 15 years we've started seeing more and more black uh, actuaries coming through and more and more black students actually being attracted to to, to that field to, to, to the field of actual science yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah because i mean i would say even further the face of business in South Africa is still sort of white middle-class male isn't it so yes I'm just uh, interested as to how that journey has been um, I mean do you did you feel particularly when you started that you had were you, were you kind of being judged differently did you have to sort of prove yourself more than the next person that you could do the job. I mean, what was? I'm just trying to get a sense mm. of that, the politics, <coughs> if I can call it, of of the of the business world now mm. that you mm. face, well, the, well the, the the racism of the business world. Mm. I think my experience is actually mixed in two. I, I honestly haven't nearly felt um, more of the racism as we know it. In, in, in society, in my corporate um, uh, journey up to so far. However, I think what I felt more has been there's always that, that, uh, that, that, that pressure and that need to, to, to succeed and that need to, 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 to not fail those who are after me and 
just the, uh, the, 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 the black actuaries in my profession. And I'll tell you um, uh, why. And I think for me, what I've experienced is that there are lots of, sometimes intentional or not, people look up to me as a, well, one, as, a, as, a, as an actuary, and then two, the fact that I am a black actuary. And there are not so many around. And as much as I interact with, with some, some I don't even interact with them, they hear about me, be it in my community or my former school or university or even in the workplace. We mentor, and I think as soon as yesterday, we had, we had a grade 10 student that I was, uh, was job shotting me here. I think okay. every two weeks I get a student who <laughs> we send a request that they want to job shadow and actually, and they want to uh, job shadow me. Um, and sometimes there's that pressure that you cannot afford to be average. Mm. You cannot afford to fail even worse. Uh, because uh, just for me as a person, I, I feel sometimes, uh, most of when I started, that especially when I, when I started, I, you had to balance your work and your studying, your board exams to actually get to qualifying as an actuary. To get there, it's a lot of pressure. But you also have that extra burden compared to someone else, I would say, out there who, don't, who doesn't have those expe expectations. Maybe there are self-made expectations that they, the reality of the world is not necessarily uh, uh, waiting and looking at you. But in your, on your own, in your own corner, that's sometimes a lot of pressure. So you, you're under pressure to actually always perform, always be excellent, always um, uh, make sure that you can you can do the best that you can possibly do and failure is always a traumatic and very very hard experience and unfortunately as, unfortunately as an as, as an actuary you experience failure one way or the other sometime either during your university years because the actual science degree is not one of the easiest you, mm -hmm. you can do you experience failure and when when it happens and i've seen it with myself and other people some people don't even recover from there that pressure is so immense <laughs> And I, I've got a couple of friends, especially the friends I came with from Durban, who were um, um, black students going to UCT. The, the environmental change, at the same time, expectations from home and from the people who look up to you that you're going to be a big, a big, a big action, a big, big, someone of significance, is quite, uh, is quite a lot. And in corporates, I think sometimes that is not well understood. Mm. I'm not sure whether we uh, we should be expecting the next person, your manager, your subordinates, to actually understand that. Maybe not. Maybe they should. I think all part of the context of the transformation. The transformation needs also. Uh, we need to incorporate some of those things because it, it, it is the reality that sometimes we live with. Yeah, um, I was talking to um, uh, Rory Sang Chabalala. He's a, a business strategist, and he actually said something like that. He got a um, a bursary from, I think it was an accountancy firm or something like that. And I think he was working for them while he was a student or at least once he did his degree, you know, he had to go and work off his time then. He also, we didn't really discuss in full detail what he'd said to them, but he he did give them some certain recommendations just on how they should be managing um, particularly their black graduates, mm. because that mm. experience is, as you, you're talking about these pressures, I mean, it's it's just sort of so multi-layered. Mm. Um, mm. And, you know, it's something that a white corporate established uh, business has no or very little understanding of. Mm. Mm. True. And, 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 and again, also in business context, you also do not want to be unfair to other people. Uh, you, you, it, it's hard to have special treatment 
for some people and other people don't have that privilege. So sometimes balancing the two is always a tricky part. It's always a, 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 a difficult one. Uh, but I, I mean, for me, in, in all the corporates, uh, all the organizations I've worked with, including my own profession, I think for years I had been chairing the Actuarial Society's um, uh, Transformation Committee. Okay. And I've developed over time three pillars that I believe are genuine, um, uh, possibly hard uh, pillars of, of of true transformation, and uh, I, I, I always insist. And uh, it, uh, and I mean, if you black actually, everyone will ask you what do you think about transformation, how what do you think about transformation, or if, even in general management, if you because it is a reality also as you sure. said in, in in South African corporates, general management is still not as transformed. So for me, the three pillars are it's always about are we creating enough opportunities and opening the doors. Um, and and uh, that's always a, a big debate in South Africa. Saying, are you closing someone's door when you open for uh, person A? Are you closing person B's door? And how are we creating those opportunities? Those are debates that we have to have. You can we cannot avoid that. It has to happen. And but in creating those opportunities, I think the second pillar for me becomes way more important in in terms of how do we equip and empower then that individual whose door you've opened. It's one thing to open a door and leave it there. Just opening doors, you probably in in, in business you you you're setting us you're setting up yourself for failure. And if we can actually master the opening of opportunities and the opening the doors, and secondly, being able to empower and support and facilitate the growth of this person, um, and then the third one is accountability from both from from, from both sides, the, the the giver and the receiver. Mm. You cannot have. I'm talking here again purely in the commercial and and corporate setting. In everything we do, we've got goals, we've got plans, we've got, we've got business plans, and there is accountability in the end. So transformation cannot be different from that because then it is that charity kind of element if it doesn't, it does not have accountability to it. Open doors, empower, have accountability. If we cannot meet the target, uh, what does it mean? If the individual who's been opened the doors and been empowered can still not perform, that's where it's being unfair to the person that would do, who could have got that opportunity. Mm. But if they can then perform, then they're adding value to society, they're adding value to the organization and to themselves. So it's a, it's a two-way kind of accountability that you also still need to be very firm about. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. I like that. You mentioned these kids and uh, following you around. Do, is that quite a... Is that quite a nice thing to do and do you, do you get a kick out of that no it's not i i i, I don't um especially in the community i think in the work environment i do get a kicker in that i get opportunity to sit and talk and discuss and explain to them what an actuary is and i also focus a lot on, on the responsibility of an actuary in the ethical element and what the amount of work you deal with and how your judgment is so important especially being ethical and uh, being professional is one you being you are taught being uh, uh, being professional but you no one can teach you to be ethical so how an actually as an actually within your professionalism you need to also be ethical and how the amount of work you deal with and the influence of god and for me i enjoy then a lot talking about those things and then talking about then the technical details in, in that and what i do and how i can uh, impact the business decisions and our clients and how they can actually and and most of the time what i try with uh, with with the, with, the, with the learners and students that interact on a one-to-one -one basis is to just broaden them beyond insurance mm. insurance it becomes an example mm. but I, I really love to go into wider fields because the the, the careers of the future are certainly actuaries are not going to be sitting on the desk and doing life insurance the way we know them. Half of them maybe, yes. Mm. But the other half will be doing way 
different things. We've got too many wealth problems uh, out there that needs to be solved and needs to be managed and needs to be delivered that you, you actually are going to be confined to the Twitter desk. And the newer actuaries that are, I believe are going to be emerging in the context in, in, of changing careers will want to be involved in, 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 in wider fields mm. that are way more than just the commercial interest that you actually Right, pursuing. just to sort of... Yeah, so I get a lot of a kick in, 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 in those discussions. But when I go back home, then you've got kids sometimes who look at my car and look at uh, what I've achieved as an actuary as the, as, as, as the climax of success, mm. which personally I do not believe. But then sometimes you don't have that opportunity then to engage with all of them, you are engaged with some of them, but some of them who are from a distance may not necessarily perceive. And I think they just see the car and they, they think great. They think they see the car, they think great. They think I want to be an actuary. Yes, fantastic. You should be an actuary, but there's more than that that you actually need to be achieving. Mm. Yeah. You you did. Um, you've mentioned now also these jobs of the future, and you spoke about. Um, Sort of alternative energy as as being a field um, that that where, where you see actuaries being able to branch into, and I'm just um, interested in discussing or, or hearing from you how you see now um, the fourth industrial revolution sort of impacting on the labour market, particularly in South Africa, or how how is South Africa placed in in your um, analysis or understanding to take advantage of the fourth industrial revolution because it seems that we're still talking you know we have this job summit that's actually started today and you know there's the mining charter and it, it's it's kind of we're still kind of stuck in in a mining economy when when when, when we should mm. be we should have maybe left that behind already mm, mm, mm. yeah I you know, you know, when it comes to uh, when it comes to the fourth industrial revo revolution for the Americas and and and, and, and the Western worlds in in, in, in Europe, um, of course, it comes with fantastic benefits and 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 possibilities for uh, for those societies. But unfortunately, those impacts and come back to impact us here in 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 South Africa and Africa as a whole and in 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 in, in the East. Um, we cannot escape the fact that we live in a global village now. Uh, our markets are opened, our countries are opened. Um, w whatever happens globally impacts us. If we cannot keep up uh, with what's happening uh, in, in terms of the careers, in terms of the technology, in terms of uh, how, uh, uh, how the job market evolves, we are left behind. So I think for us as Africans, we still have to find what is necessarily our, 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 our advantage when it comes to employment. And that involves understanding very well the primary sector of, 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 of an economy, which has been for years our advantage. So you think about the, the raw material, be it uh, the, 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 the minerals in, 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 in the mining. That has always been uh, the advantage. However, the world is evolving and it's changing. The secondary sectors, uh, which we, uh, we've done uh, relatively well, but not as, as well as we, we, should, we should be doing, those value-adding uh, uh, sectors to the, to the raw material. How do you then take that material that we, that we have and produce something? And production, actually compared to the East, we failed dismally. 
because uh, the East has done very well in, in the secondary um, uh, employment or, or, or sectors, but they don't have much of the primary uh, market. came You're from Africa. Manufacturing. Manufacturing, but that's all secondary. Man you use the raw material to manufacture. And then the tertiary sector is where we're trying now to catch up. Because then the, the West says we'll, we, we've got the advantage on the tertiary side. We've got the technology. Um, and, and for us, we always, it seems like we're always playing catch-up. Um, and I think with the, we, 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 with the jobs of the future, they, of course, are lining a lot in the tertiary sector. But I think also the way that we've, we've been seeing the sectors has been broken down. Just look at the careers, for example. If you think uh, uh, most of the careers we're going to have, as an example, are going to be freelancing or on-demand, on again, uh, type mm -hmm. of careers uh, with the individuals who are not aligned to any corporate or aligned to any, any, any specific um, entity. Uh, but those can be in the primary sector. But how do we then gear ourselves with, uh, you spoke of a mining check, uh, charter, does it equip uh, uh, people who are coming as individuals to add value in, in, in that sector or it, it equip people who come in consortiums and in organizations to, do the, to get the license? Do, does a person have a couple of millions, hundreds or two million to actually get a license? Or can an individual who, who's done geology, who can actually be able to analyze um, uh, what's under, and underneath and the prospect, get a license? So those type of things, I think we need to be uh, thinking about all our sector in, in the context of the new careers and the new jobs that we will be seeing in the future. We cannot avoid it. It will happen. And unfortunately, the, 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 the more we live, we, we're sitting on the back, in the back, on the back foot, uh, the more there will be, ca there will be casualties due to the, the uh, there will be casualties because the, 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 the new jobs that we, we demand are actually going to be shaped elsewhere. We'll still con continue to produce the, the raw material, but we're not going to fully benefit from that. We're not adding value in the value chain. How do we add value in the value chain? It's certainly not the way that we've always been done. It's not going to be the big entities. It's not going to be the structured environment that we've always seen. It, the, the world is becoming more and more unstructured and individuals are playing more of a bigger role than organizations. And I think, especially if you look at the millennials and the Generation Z, they do not want to belong to an organization. If they do, they want that organization to align with their interests and what they believe they stand for. Uh, and I think once we, if we can get uh, our head around those, we can actually even look even beyond, uh, go even further and look in terms of curriculum from uh, preschool to high, primary school, high school to university. How's our curriculum uh, equipping us to be much more well-rounded and much more uh, value-adding rather than employed? Because employment is, a, is, an out, is an output, not an input. We can't, in a job summit, we shouldn't be discussing employment as an input that we need to input in, in, in terms of economic growth. It's an output. So what are the inputs that we should be putting, uh, that we should be changing? Curriculum is one of them. Uh, uh, gearing our, our, our sectors and our environment for, for those jobs is, is, is another. And then, uh, and then out, um, uh, um, output should happen. But again, it would be naive to talk about the job the jobs and the job summits and the and employment in South Africa and ignore the fact that there's a, a large portion of our people out there who are not skilled and they're unemployable. Not equipped at all. Yes, so they're unemployed because they're unemployable. So they're not skilled. So how do we actually then still accommodate for, uh, for, 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 for a large portion of our society that should be productive in that, in, in that manner. You cannot ignore that. So we have to still look in terms of, of means from now until the future where we can actually be keeping up with, uh, with, with the newer um, uh, careers. We should be able to actually accommodate them one way or the other still. We cannot ignore that. So, I mean, you are talking about quite a dramatic 
a structural shift then with a greater, quite a much larger, almost social compact um, beyond even the social grants we have today and mm. an education system that is completely transformed and requires, because apparently we're spending a lot of money on our on our education system, but it's really not geared to our needs or not mm. certainly not producing the kinds of people that are required. So you're talking about quite a massive shift then, aren't you, at, yes. at many levels? Certainly, because I don't think our challenge with employment is one, there's a singular problem. It's a systematic problem. Unless, if, if you're going to solve, education is just one. If you're going to solve education, I'm not saying we are, but if we were going to solve it, it's not going to solve the, the entire mm. uh, spectrum. So it, it, it's a much more complex There's uh, not problem. one golden bullet. There's it not work? one, uh, uh, certainly. Mm. So it, it, it does require uh, an overhaul of the system and the thinking and very strong, decisive leadership. I'm not pinpointing in any specific sector, but we, ha we do have to have a strong leadership that will direct us as a, as, as a country and as an economy towards that direction. Um, we need to wrap up now. I just want to get a sense of um, we sort of seem to be in a certainly in some kind of political and economic uh, crisis at the moment. Certainly, I would say one of the more, for me, one of the more difficult periods since um, uh, democracy. Um, how do you see the sort of next five to ten years um, in South Africa, what are your sort of, what is your view on what what the future holds? I, I must say I'm very optimistic, I think, in the medium to long term, five to, to, to 20, 30 years. Uh, but I think before, before, before such uh, prospects happen, I think there's, the, 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 we are experiencing, and I think we're going to continue for the next few years, experiencing some turmoils and, and, and some um, uncertainty and a lot, of, um, a lot of destruction that may also even happen at the, in, in, in that process. I mean, we've got the national and provincial elections coming next year, and you don't need to ask anyone who's from Kazakhstan, and they'll tell you that's the most nervous, that's the time that everyone's nervous uh, about. Um, and then on top of that, you've got the land issue which is almost cutting everyone in, in, in half when we're talking in terms of the case of 10 context. And then nationally, it's cutting everyone by racial lines. Um, uh, and, and, and land is just one in a bigger context of, of the economy. So I think there will still be a lot of uncertainty. And again, young people are rising. And uh, next year is not a definite of where it's going to go. Wherever it goes, it's not, we, we're not going to be the same after the, 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 the 2019 elections. So post-May 2019, whatever happens for the next 18 months as we find ourselves as a, as a country, I think it's going to define then what would be of the future. Whatever it is, it's what you get with democracy. Whatever it is, I think if you can work on it, I'm, I'm quite positive that in, in five, to, uh, five years or beyond, there's actually still better prospects for the country. We still have an amazing... Um, uh, 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 population, still have amazing opportunities uh, in the tip of Africa where we, where, where, where we sit. So I, think, I still think that in the long term, I, I'd rather be here than anywhere else, actually. That's pretty cool.
Silentlantler, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Great. Thanks you. Thanks Nicholas. Well, yeah, that was for me pretty fascinating. I hope you enjoyed that as well. It's quite a range of topics we discussed there. Um but uh, yeah, you get a sense of the massive challenges facing our society here in South Africa when it comes to the influence of technology and the changing nature of work, but also the potential and possibilities that are available with the right thinking, uh, the right uh, leadership. Um, we need to transform our society at so many levels, you know, that there's no single golden bullet uh, that is going to resolve some of the issues that we face here in South Africa, um, but that we do need to transform our thinking if we're going to grow a society that will benefit all of its inhabitants, including those who will never work. Please subscribe to Voices from SA and Apple Podcasts so you can leave a rating or comment. These ratings are important for the pod to reach a wider audience. The podcast is also available on Spotify, Deezer, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your colleagues, tell your friends, tell the world. Until next time, I'm Nicholas Claude. Cheers. Cheers.